Hello, everyone. My name is Christopher Patterson. I am a doctoral candidate at the University of Washington, and I'm the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. As a discipline that emerged from the Third World Movement in the 1960s, Asian American Studies is fundamentally interdisciplinary. So this podcast features books on anthropology, history, literature, art, political science, and sociology, so long as they help us understand the varied experience of Asian Americans living or interacting with the United States. Today, we are joined by Dr. Robin Rodriguez. Dr. Rodriguez is an associate professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Davis. We will discuss her new book, Migrants for Export, How the Philippine State Brokers Labor to the World, which was published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2010. Migrants for Export explores labor brokerage as a neoliberal strategy that is comprised of institutional and discursive practices through which the Philippine state mobilizes its citizens and sends them abroad to work for employers throughout the world, while also generating a profit from the remittances that migrants send back to their families and the loved ones remaining in the Philippines. Rodriguez traces this trend in Filipino overseas workers, which has become one of the largest labor export systems in the world. Ultimately, she questions how and why citizens from the Philippines have come to be the most globalized workforce on the planet, and argues that the reason for this lies in the emergence of the Philippine state as a labor brokerage state. So, Robin Rodriguez, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Great. Thank you so much for the invitation, Chris. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, your history, how you came to write about labor brokerage. Sure. Well, I was born and raised um, in the Bay Area. Uh, I spent mm-hmm. most of my uh, growing up in Union City, California, which really has a sizable uh, Filipino immigrant population. Um, I think for many Filipinos in the United States, Union City, California is uh, definitely in um, kind of our constellation of key kind of sites for Filipino settlement. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in a place where literally the whole block um, was Filipino immigrants. Um, my school, um, my schools from kindergarten to high school um, had um, a good number. I mean, I, I can't even tell you uh, the actual figure. Um, it felt as if, if we were the majority, mm-hmm. um, certainly yeah. if it was not in fact the majority. Um, my middle school actually was formerly Alvarado Middle School, but most recently the school board approved the name change of Alvarado Middle, and it's now um, Larry Itleong, Philip Veracruz uh, Middle School. That just I think tells you what sort of community I grew up in. Um, And really, I think my growing up in Union City uh, shaped a lot of um, uh, what would eventually become my research questions and really what would constitute the kind of the core of my political activism, because really so much of my academic work emerges from uh, my political work as an immigrant Mm -hmm. rights advocate. Um, yeah, Union City, um, is where I grew up. It's the place that I call home. Um, and you know, my, my work in, in, um, immigration broadly and speaking beyond just the book. Um, so when I think and talk about my work, I am talking both about kind of my scholarly work, but also, um, about my activism, um, really started um, in Union City. Uh, you know, I just recall in high school, um, 
one of the big issues um, in the 80s uh, was the proliferation of gangs and gang violence, particularly amongst Filipino Americans. And I remember as a young person um, at 15, I really thought that um, one of the major remedies of this sort of violence um, could be um, ethnic studies. Although at the mm. time, I think I was calling it multicultural education because uh, mm. that was sort of the only language I had accessible at that time, which is mm. sort of interesting given the fact that in the 80s, um, ethnic studies was already enjoying um, uh, and, you know, maybe almost 15 year history, if not almost 20 year mm. history in the Bay Area. But that was, um, you know, very far away from my existence as uh, a um, young, you know, woman of color in Union City. So there's all this gang violence in Union City, and there was a lot of concern in the Filipino community about it, how to root it out. Um, and there was also concern, too, about the ways in which the local police were actually addressing it. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a feeling that um, the police was being heavy-handed. And so, mm -hmm. you know, as a young person at that time, I was a sophomore, I thought, you know, um, on one hand, um, multicultural education uh, could be something productive and um, inspiring maybe for mm. the young men who were involved in gangs to give them a sense of identity and purpose, but also something that local authorities could sort of help enlighten kind of a, a local authorities as well. So this is sort of... Um, you know, my first engagement politically around um, immigrant kind of issues affecting the immigrant community mm -hmm. um, and my own engagement really with ethnic studies. So, yeah, that was sort of my reaction. And I, it prompted me to write this letter to the superintendent of schools and, um, and uh, the police chief and the mayor. And that actually got me an invitation uh, to meet with all three of them to talk wow. this out. And, you know, um, in the years, that, this is while you were, a student. yeah, I was like a sophomore, <laughs> the same age wow. now as my son. But, um, yeah, I, um, you know, after that, I started getting really involved with different community based projects, um, that, um, were responding to gang violence, uh, that were initiated by the Filipinos for Affirmative Action based in Oakland, which is now actually called the Filipino Advocates for Justice, and got involved in different dialogues, kind of facilitating um, dialogues that they organized to facilitate better communication between the youth and their parents, dialogues between the police and the youth and parents, and just a number of different activities. But I think that really is where um, my interest in ethics studies began, and that carried through into my undergraduate career. Um, I eventually uh, attended the University of California at Santa Barbara, where there was an Asian American Studies program, and that's really where I started to encounter um, ethnic studies uh, as a student, you know, kind of just really in a more, um, uh, you know, um, you know, actually reading the texts uh, and uh, um, encountering uh, scholars, doing the work of it. Um, and so that's sort of uh, where I, you know, kind of began to really think very seriously about the possibility of being a scholar, um, mm. an Asian American scholar. Um, 
and along the way, I kept continuing um, to do uh, organizing work around um, immigrant issues. Uh, the 1990s, when I was in college, was also the time when Proposition 187 uh, was passed by the state mm. of California. And so as I'm taking these courses in Asian American studies, I was making these connections to uh, this new round of kind of anti-Asian sentiment and really um, organizing uh, around um, the issue. And, you know, a lot of what we also did as student activists was to take Asian American studies into our own hands and not necessarily wait um, to take courses, but to actually uh, take uh, what we were learning and to actually um, educate our peers with what we were um, learning in the classroom, but also doing the work mm. of kind of creating our own curriculums. And so, you know, um, that was, uh, you know, I kind of think about my career uh, in many ways as uh, as an Asian American scholar and teacher as beginning well before I got my formal appointment, um, first at Rutgers University and now at Davis, but really in the workshops that we organized um, on the campus, outside of classroom, in the multicultural center, in our, our apartments, um, you know, um, I think that's really where a lot of my work um, as a scholar uh, and teacher began. Mm-hmm. It feels like uh, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Prop 187 because uh, that uh, we could also explain to the audience who might not know what that was, but uh, it it really redefined citizenship and tried to keep uh, immigrants from uh, taking part in healthcare and things like that. Like, can you explain that a bit and how that might have helped? Uh, Care to you towards writing about Philippine citizenship and citizenship in different contexts? Sure, sure, absolutely. So, Proposition One Eighty Seven for people who don't know, I think is uh, can best be um, described as sort of um, you know a precursor to mm-hmm. uh, the Arizona law. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and and of course the Arizona law, uh, uh, which was introduced and, and passed in in two thousand ten. Um, we all know, uh, for those of us who kind of follow um, immigration uh, issues, uh, mm-hmm. really uh, criminalizes undocumented um, uh, immigrants. It really basically gives license to local police to be able to apprehend those they suspect to be undocumented. And mm-hmm. I think the operative word here is those they suspect to be undocumented. Mm-hmm. So for those of us who are concerned about um, this law, for immigrant rights advocates, we see this as um, just um, a, a, a law that sanctions racial profiling. Mm-hmm. Now, 187 actually was much more far-reaching uh, than the Arizona law because, mm-hmm. in effect, if it had been implemented, it wasn't, thankfully, because mm-hmm. it got held up in the courts and was ultimately ruled unconstitutional. But mm. if it had been implemented, really it meant that every single state employee, that could mean a teacher, that could mean a public health um, provider, it could mean the woman working um, at the DMV, it could mean um, any number of people who work on the state payroll, um, mm. beyond simply the, the, the police, that it would be... Um, uh, within uh, their mandate as state employees to report p- 
people who they suspected um, as being undocumented immigrants who might be, you know, unlawfully um, uh, taking uh, advantage of state services. It mandated mm-hmm. these state employees to report um, these uh, suspected undocumented immigrants to um, immigration authorities. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think we often, or people often think about California as the, the left, co- you know, as the left, key, left head, coast, you know, yeah. uh, the center of the left coast, i.e. the more progressive um, states of the union. But, you know, I think it's important to recall these moments like 187 uh, and certainly, you know, earlier histories of anti-Asian, um, uh, you know, anti-Asian immigrant movements um, and that, that these politics, you know, are, are equally a part of this state's history. Uh, so, yeah, so 187 really prompted, um, you know, a lot of us to 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 take action and um, many students, college students are really uh, a part of uh, the mobilization to oppose it. Now, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think that a lot of that work helped shape um, what would eventually become the questions that I would then answer in my book. Um, in large part because I continue to do activist uh, or immigrant organizing work um, even beyond 187. So mm-hmm. I entered graduate school in 1996 um, in uh, the Department of Sociology at UC Berkeley. And, um, you know, I continued to be very involved in different social justice um, work uh, and was really taking a keen interest in um, what was happening um, with Philippine migration. Because 1996, in fact, was just a year actually after um, the hanging of a Filipina domestic worker by the Singaporean government. So Mm. she actually... for many Filipino, um, for many Filipinos, had been fa- falsely accused. Uh, there seemed to be a lot of acts, uh, elements to her, her her conviction. She was convicted of murder, but there are a lot mm. of elements of her case that seemed really um, kind of off. Uh, mm. And Filipino. This is a flora contemplation. Yes, flora contemplation. Um, and so uh, a lot of. Uh, Filipinos were actually concerned that she um, might have been set up by somebody. Mm. She had been accused of killing another Filipino domestic worker and actually the child that that woman uh, uh, was taking care of. But there was just too much about the case that was very suspicious. And so Filipinos in the Philippines, Filipino migrants around the world, staged mass protests um, demanding that the Philippine government intervene, demanding that the Philippine government um, um, launch an an official inquiry, um, not just even launch the inquiry, but also um, really make uh, sort of use uh, 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 diplomatic pressure to, um, sorry, to... um, (laughs) to get the Singaporean government to uh, reopen the case. Uh, okay. Now, the Philippine, uh, and, and, and actually the protests um, in support of Flora Contemplacion for 
commentators at the time rivaled um, the people power movement that brought down um, the Marcos dictatorship. But what was different about this is it was no longer simply confined to the Philippines, but in fact was a, this global movement. And the major, the movement behind it was uh, Migrante, what became uh, the Alliance Migrante International. So, you know, this is 1996. I just been doing all this work around Proposition uh, 187. I'm paying attention to migrant issues. I want to continue this stuff as I now, you know, start um, courses at Berkeley in the PhD program in, in sociology. And so these definitely um, become the questions that um, uh, I, 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 you know, worry about and pay attention to also as a scholar. So, um, you know, what ended up happening is after my first year of courses, I ended up uh, in the summer of 1997, I ended up going to the Philippines and, and meeting um, with migrante activists. Um, uh, actually, I wasn't entirely sure that I was going to study migration, um, but um, some of my experiences there made me realize that migration really had to be my focus mm. uh, because it's impossible to not, um, you know, it's impossible to ignore migration when you're in the Philippines. You know, it's everywhere. It's the forms you fill out right before you land in the Ninoy Aquino International Airport. It's you know, the disembarkation card, it's right there when you uh, pass through immigration. There's a separate line for overseas Filipino workers. There's the people who you stand beside at the baggage claim who are lugging, you know, off huge boxes off of the mm -hmm. baggage carousel. It's just there confronting you immediately. And, um, I guess I just couldn't ignore it. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it was in, again, you know, from these, this commitment as an activist to migrants issues, immigrant rights issues, uh, to, um, you know, and this coinciding with my graduate study. Um, in fact, you know, I thought about my graduate study as being able to advance social justice aims, you know, mm. um, that's mm -hmm. really where the questions for this project then emerged. And, um, you know, that's when I started to do the more formal work as an academic um, and as a scholar of migration. Great. Uh, so you do begin the book uh, talking about labor brokerage, which is a very interesting term. Uh, but that you talk about it as both a globalization strategy and one that the Philippine state can or helps characterize the Philippine state in some ways. Uh, so can you tell the audience a bit about what labor brokerage is and uh, how you see it uh, uh, helping us understand Asian America or globalization in general? Sure. Well, labor brokerage, um, I argue, is, uh, well, first of all, I think just to back up a bit, you know, I think mm -hmm. it's important for listeners to just uh, know, uh, especially because I'm imagining many of your listeners are likely to be based in the United States. Um, and so, therefore, if they understand immigration, they're understanding it mainly to the U.S., now, you know, when we step outside of the United States, we can, you know, just going even to Canada, just north of us, hmm. um, migration starts to look um, much, much different. Um, in the Canadian context, for instance, there's a huge um, population of live-in caregivers, uh, The uh, and a lot of them, if not, uh, you know, uh, 
certainly a great majority of them are, are migrants from the Philippines. The Canadian government had introduced this policy to try to bring in low-wage uh, caregivers to provide the care of children and elderly um, for Canadian families. Um, you know, so that's a law that's specific to Canada, of course. But for going even further, you kind of, you know, if, if we kind of imagine ourselves, you know, in Google Maps and we're starting mm. in the U.S. and we're kind of panning out, panning out, and we start to look, you know, what we find is that the Filipino um, is, in fact, a truly glo global labor force. Um, Filipino workers can be found in hundreds of countries around the world, hundreds of countries. Uh, this is, um, and this is really, this should, you know, be kind of, um, surprising and kind of astounding, I think, to litters, to, to listeners to kind of think that this archipelago in the middle of the, the Pacific can actually produce so many people who leave for so many destinations around the world. Um, so daily, um, nearly 5,000 people, that's the latest count, are wow. leaving the Philippines on a daily basis to go everywhere. And by everywhere, I mean everywhere. Literally, you, you find Filipinos in Africa. I've met them in South Africa. You find them in Europe. I've met them in um, Spain, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, mm -hmm. in Germany, um, and you know, and, and other places, uh, you find them in Europe, um, in the streets of Hong Kong in mm. streets of Taipei and Taiwan, you find them in Korea, Japan. Um, and they're all over the middle East, um, in places like Saudi Arabia, in Syria, in Lebanon, uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, so the Philippines is a truly global, provides a, the world a, a labor force. Um, it's Filipinos are truly a globalized, uh, you know, workers. Um, and in fact, you know, the Philippines really is unrivaled in this regard. You don't have the same global scope and scale of migration uh, coming from other places. Uh, Mexico certainly produces quite a number of migrants. Those migrants primarily come to a single de destination. Um, mm -hmm. Not true for the Philippines. Now, in terms of even just remittance earnings, the Philippines counts as one of the world's top remittance earning countries um, in the world. Perhaps that's not surprising. Right, given mm. kind of the global scope and scale of a migration. So then, what explains it? And and so the answer for me is this: uh, the state, or what I call the mm. labor brokerage state. So, the labor brokerage state, um, in a nutshell, is the transnational apparatus of institutions that help facilitate um, the out migration of Filipino workers, and they're quite. A bit. Um, there yeah. are, you know, uh, agencies based in the Philippines, um, but it's also the Philippines network of consular and embassy offices all around the world that um, actually play um, a role of actually um, kind of helping in marketing and and um, 
you know, facilitating bilateral kind of agreements with, with host countries to help facilitate migration. Um, mm. Now, why does it do it? And and I guess that's really where the question to this this issue of um, how this connects to processes of globalization comes in. Um, why it does it, I suggest, is that this is really um, one of uh, many, but in the Philippine case, it's sort of the dominant um, uh, neoliberal strategy. Um, mm. That is, it's a strategy uh by which the Philippine state attempts to contain the social dislocations that are endemic to um, neoliberal globalization. And, you know, for lay listeners who aren't, you know, particularly familiar with Asian American scholarship or, or the scholarship on globalization, um, neoliberalism refers to an economic uh, philosophy um, that basically says, look, you know, um, states really ought not be in the business of, of providing, um, you know, social services or regulating economic mm-hmm. life because really um, corporations, firms, business, entrepreneurs do that much better. Um, and we see it in the United States. We don't often call it neoliberal, but, um, you know, we call it welfare reform. Uh, mm. We call it um, people pulling themselves up from their bootstraps. Uh, that's what we think of um, when we, you know, that's how neoliberalism manifests itself in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, neoliberalism in other places uh, manifests itself similarly. Um, and that uh, causes... Um, Tremendous dislocation um, for especially uh, formerly colonized um, countries in the global south um, or neocolonial sites like the Philippines. Um, So already you have um, uh, tremendous, uh, you know, inequality um, and um, that inequality gets exacerbated by neoliberal um, economic reforms that basically take away any social safety nets that might have been in existence um, mm. and and really gives full reign over to uh, corporations, both national and um, global, um, in kind of um, in, in setting the agenda for the economy. Uh, so, you know, for me, uh, labor, um, brokerage becomes this mechanism for addressing these inequalities because, you know, what, what neoliberalism does is, you know, basically it says, look, you need to, in the case of the Philippines, um, liberalize or make more flexible your labor, uh, policy, you know, firms aren't going to kind want to come into the Philippines to invest if they feel like they've got to pay people too much, mm. um, mm-hmm. you need to uh, really uh, be more flexible about what the minimum wage um, is. You need to, be, need to be more flexible about even the work day and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, 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 and how long you intend to employ workers. This uh, the art, so the art and neoliberal argument uh, goes, um, would make then the Philippines much more enticing to foreign investors, and foreign investors. So the logic goes, are, are what 
the Philippines needs to develop, right, to modernize. Mm, yeah. um, but, of course, what does that mean for Filipinos? It means that they are, you know, as, um, are underemployed because they have to work as contract workers already in the Philippines. It means they're underpaid because they're not being paid a living wage. Um, and that causes that that can, you know, really feed into, you know, um, social unrest. And, you know, there's certainly lots of um, uh, the, the, the labor movement in the Philippines has been um, growing its ranks. Uh, progressive movements in the Philippines have been growing their ranks and really attempting to put uh, the brakes on this kind of, on these sorts of, um, you know, program or policies um, and, 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 you know, continued kind of the aggressive implementation of neoliberal policy actually um, continues to kind of um, grow those ranks of the disaffected. Mm. Um, and I really think that what, what, um, labor brokerage then does is that, uh, and, and the state is not very, um, you know, it's not as if it hides this agenda. It's quite clear mm -hmm. even in its own articulations of, of labor, the labor export policy. Um, that is that they do see, um, labor export as providing the jobs to people in the Philippines that they don't, wouldn't ordinarily have. Uh, it provides them a source of income that they cannot enjoy in the Philippines and and it can therefore curb all sorts of social unrest. Mm. And so, you know, in many ways, I think of new uh, of new labor brokerage less as an economic strategy, even as it provides uh, uh, this, you know, source of foreign exchange to the Philippine state, and perhaps as more of a neoliberal mode of governmentality, a way of managing the Philippine uh, population alongside of other kinds of neoliberal. Um, kind of interventions. Mm, yeah, you use the word government governmentality, I think, throughout the text to kind of describe that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, one of the things I really liked about this book is that you provide a history of this uh, so that we kind of see this out-migration beyond the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you begin with U.S. colonialism in the Philippines and how that helped play a role in the emergence uh, of the labor brokerage state. So could you expand that or uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's crucial, especially for Asian American audiences, because, you know, after a while it might be as they listen to this think, okay, so how does this have anything to do with Asian America or uh, more broadly or specifically Filipino America? Well, in the book, I basically, um, I track the emergence of labor brokerage to the U S colonial, um, labor system. Um, I often, you know, as I talk about it kind of beyond the scope of the book, when I talk about my work, I, I say that, you know, um, really labor brokerage, um, wasn't invented by Marcos, although, you know, we're, we typically think about uh, uh, the labor export policy of Marcos as being kind of the moment when you see the active, uh, the actual, the institutionalization of the kind of active export of Filipino workers, but really labor brokerage is an invention, um, you know, um, the, the Philippine, the U S colonial labor system. Um, and in the book I describe 
really that um, system is offered as as uh, where we can locate the institutional precursors for labor brokerage. But it's really more than just kind of the the institutional precursors for it. But it really is the moment it, under a U.S. Um, the U.S. colonials of the Philippines is where you even see the the blueprint laid out for what um, becomes later this neo-colonial uh, Philippine economy um, and mm. and and government and and so you know you to to understand um, this contemporary um, uh, apparatus you really do have to locate it in in the colonial moment but you know the connection to the US um, empire in US um, uh, and, and US global capital you can continue to you see it even when you track where Filipino labor goes. And I think one of the things I don't develop enough in the book, and this may, um, you know, is still something I'd like to continue to pursue um, as a researcher, but I, I see glimpses of it, and I, I kind of talk about glimpses of um well, I saw glimpses of it in my research, and I kind of mentioned this in, in the book, and that is why Philippine labor is so global is because U.S. capital is so mm-hmm. global. And I find instances of this um, over and over again in, in my research. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Filipinos working in Brunei, and that's a case study that I cover in the book. Brunei mm-hmm. is a Southeast Asian country. Now, these Filipino workers were working for a garments factory. Well, who, what, you know, what, what, you know, what market were these factories producing for? These were U.S. markets. These are Filipino mm. migrants working in Brunei, producing for the Gap, producing for mm. Old Navy. Um, you know, now Filipinos in in uh, the Middle East, Filipinos in Iraq, for instance, Filipinos are in Iraq literally serving, you know, the U.S. Uh, US military, servicing mm. the U.S. military, whether they're uh, actually kind of on the bases working or uh, working with auxiliary sort of units that are sort of, that, you know, were there um, kind of in the immediate uh, wake of um, kind of the initial uh, bombing of Iraq uh, in 2003 mm. and then uh, later just, you know, the infrastructure even to sustain empire, you know, the construction fo- projects, all of that, that. That's where you find Filipinos working. Um and you know, and 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 though again, I see glimpses of it in my research. I think really close, systematic study that really tracks um, back, looking at major U.S. Um, operations in throughout the the, the world. And if you were uh, to track it uh, back, you can see it, you know, going to the Philippines and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's a big piece of the story that I, I don't think I did enough of um, in my work, partly because I was just trying to map out, you know, how it was working in the Philippines. But as we follow sort of the tentacles of this apparatus, I think um, what we will see is that, in fact, you know, the, the globalization of the Filipino worker has everything to do with the globalization of U.S. empire and, uh, the you know, the uh, and um U.S. Uh, capital, um, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting to see it grow from 
Filipinos being exported as colonial subjects to the U.S. and then now being exported kind of abroad uh, in this kind of global economy. I think it's fantastic the way uh, you kind of developed that narrative. Um, but specifically in the 1970s and 80s when uh, Marcos is uh, – signed executive order 797 and such things uh that's the, the labor brokerage state really starts to emerge i think for you mm -hmm. uh, can you go into detail a bit about the actual like structural adjustments and things that happened that helped this uh new context emerge um in uh the philippines mm -hmm. yeah. yeah well you know i mean the marcos um Already, I mean, you kind of have to situate. Um, so Marcos introduced this in the mid, in the early 1970s, and and this is not this is a moment that's both specific to the Philippines, but really part of a, a global um, kind of shift, and, and that is, you know, this real push on the part of um, multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the uh, International Monetary Fund, or the IMF, a real push. Um, and this is also, mind you, in the context of the Cold War. I think this is very crucial. Mm. One needs to understand that, you know, a lot of these developmental initiatives um, that were pushed by these multilateral institutions was in the context of, you know, um, of ensuring kind of the containment uh, of, of um of various uh, uh, countries or formerly colonized countries uh, to contain them from uh, what was perceived as, you know, the, the, the pernicious and, and dangerous kind of spread of communism. Mm. And so the idea was uh, that um, in places uh, within the United States' ambit, places like the Philippines, uh, that these would be important sites uh, to um, kind of showcase uh, the the benefits of of capitalism, that the capitalist route um, was the better route, uh, and so as amongst the different kind of um, policy initiatives um, as part of this kind of broader Cold War project was to really encourage, and this is also, mind you, happening simultaneous to um, deindustrialization in, in uh, uh, the United States. So now mm. firms in the U.S. now are, are uh, you know, and partly in response to um, what was, you know, a growth in the labor movement kind of post-World War II um, that meant, you know, um, higher wages for American workers that cuts into uh, corporate profits. Uh, now um, there's a real need to kind of um, identify alternative sites uh, for production, uh, sites uh, where there are lower, uh, you know, um, cheaper workers. And this is all kind of coming together at a, at a particular, um, historical moment. And, and it's at this time, um, in, in places like the Philippines where countries are being encouraged to actually shift from what used to be what was called an import, um, substitution, um, uh, kind of industrialization that is where, you know, national economies, uh, that had been formally colonized were trying to kind of produce domestically, um, and to, uh, substitute what they used to be importing with locally produced projects. Uh, you know, that was sort of in the wave of the early kind of, um, 
post-colonial period, then they were now being encouraged to actually now shift to export-oriented industrialization. Mm. The idea was, no, actually, you know, uh, foreign capital can actually help toward uh, the project of industrialization fat along because um, they've got the knowledge and the expertise. Uh, they've been doing it in their respective countries. They can bring that technology over to you and kind of facilitate industrialization in a way that your import-oriented industrialization um, can't. Um, mm. So, you know, there was this encouragement of this kind of uh, shift um, which then led to, uh, you know, the offshoring of production from places like the United States, uh, from the United States to places like the Philippines um, and its neighboring countries. Um, and that created uh, this major uh, kind of uh, balance of trade, um, kind of uh, imbalance, trade imbalances. Um and it was in, in these this you know uh, and of course you know the 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 multilateral institutions well you know argued that this is just part of the transition from ex, you know import oriented industrialization to export oriented industrialization these are some of just um the adjustments that one you know country needs to endure towards this greater goal of industrialization uh capital kind of capitalist modernization um but it did lead to these kinds of imbalances, um, it did have major uh, impacts on the populations of these countries, to uh, and 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 those populations did react, and and um, so the 1970s was also a time of the rise of you know student uh, uh, radicalism in the Philippines as mm. as, uh, as young people were responding um, to to this kind of. Um, uh, orientation and and the ways in which it was kind of further exacerbating um, inequalities in Philippine society, and it was against this backdrop then that the that Marcos introduces um, this labor export policy. Um, and as I say in the book, you know, this labor export policy isn't something he just kind of invents. It's not like he just comes up with it. I mean, he has these you know. Inst- the, institutional kind of um, uh, the pieces uh, of it are already mm-hmm. kind of there, um, uh, um, having been you know uh, kind of established under the colonial labor regime. Hmm. It seems that uh, Marcos kind of helps put in a lot of those institutions, or uh, he signs the executive orders. But uh, what's interesting, I think, uh, in your later chapters is how. The uh, Filipino nationalism and Filipino citizenship starts to change based on this uh, idea of kind of the heroic uh, migrant, heroic overseas worker, and that it, it's it's interesting to me because it also um, recategorizes how women are seen as as uh, not just kind of domestic or in the home, but also uh, out in the world and sending remittances back. But can you tell us a little bit about how that Filipino type or Filipino citizenship was also uh, structured by this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, there definitely, uh, you know, so much of this is also gendered. I mean, I think I've talked a lot about mm-hmm. the labor piece and kind of uh, the political economy piece. But yeah, I mean, a lot of, um, you know, uh, and this is where citizenship comes in. I haven't talked about citizenship very much. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, so much of h- how labor brokerage works is it's about also kind of capturing um, 
the 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 hearts and minds literally of of mm. Filipinos. It's about in in um, engaging them to imagine themselves in new ways, and uh, it, it's it's it, it's about um, having them imagine them themselves and their futures. Um, as, uh, you know, being, you know, or, or they're imagining their kind of self-actualization as happening, you know, through migration and that, that that isn't some kind of betrayal of the country to imagine oneself leaving, but that's actually some, you know, kind of nationalist contribution. And of course that kind of imagining requires a reimagining too of gender and how gender, uh, you know, um, and, and how women and men and femininity and masculinity are to be differently understood now if Mm -hmm. you know um you know um and and certainly you know for women um in 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 the philippines although you know this is the truth still right um not just in Mm -hmm. the philippines but everywhere and because patriarchal and heteronormative ideas continue to reign dominant um the idea is that you know women continue to be the most appropriate um uh uh you know caretakers of their children or uh the um and uh, the caretakers, you know, and, and, and mm. the most appropriate people to attend to their homes. But really, um, under this kind of uh, system of labor brokerage, uh, there's a real kind of stretching of that um, idea and, and, and a reconfiguring of it that, in fact, you know, the family should be imagined and can be imagined as a transnational one, that women can and and should care for their children by being employed, even as it also requires that they continue to um, sustain their children emotionally um, um, kind of transnationally. So there's all of this kind of work. Um, and, and so, you know, it ties to citizenship because it's, we think about citizenship as not simply kind of, you know, who is eligible to participate in a polity, although it is that, and that's just as much a part of what the Philippines has done. You know, labor brokerage requires that citizenship, um, you know, change, mm-hmm. but it's also about, you know, um, how uh, we think about belonging, who belongs to a place and how does, you know, where is that place? And so, you know, there's a real way, there's a way in which uh, to be the Fil- a Filipino is to be, you know, um, all, all, you know, a glo- global, you know, and to think kind of globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't discussed really your, your methods that you use in the book, which are very interesting, I think, because uh, you're using uh, your going out and just talking to people and you're looking at kind of advertisements and you're really getting involved, I think, uh, in a very interesting way uh, as a sociologist and Asian American studies uh, person going there. Can can you illuminate a bit on how you uh, did research for this project and kind of what your experience was in talking to people? Sure, sure. I mean, you know, what I, what I did is what I call and what I think is becoming, um, you know, uh, a kind of a, a preferred method for um, some people. I did what's called an ethnography of the state. Mm-hmm. Now, you mm-hmm. know, typically when we think about ethnography, um, we typically think, you know, of the kind of Indiana Jones, although he was an archaeologist. But I think we think about, you know, anthropologists who do ethnography as being, you know, these white dudes, um who go out to these far off remote places in the world to study, Mm -hmm. um, to study strange and unusual people. 
And mm. truly, you know, ethnography um, was done and still done in some cases like this. And really, ethnography um, was part uh, and parcel to uh, a colonial, uh, you, you know, projects, uh, European mm. colonial projects. The idea really was that, you know, people needed to be studied um, uh, so that they could be better uh, ruled or governed. So mm. ethnography has, um, you know, is very much kind of implicated in the colonial project. Um, but I think, you know, some feminist scholars um, and other Marxist scholars have really seized on ethnography as a um, method that can, in fact, um, serve liberatory kind of ends or that can help in elucidating um, structures of power by training the eye on um, major institutions of power as opposed to mm. racialized others. And so that's why I felt like it was a method that made sense to me, um, given my own kind of commitment to kind of um, doing research in the service of kind of unmasking uh, power um, and mm. locating um, and, and describing these sites of power um, for the purpose of, you know, unraveling power. So um, I did, you know, this ethnography of the state, it meant really kind of going around examining, um, looking at how, the different bureaucracies functioned, um, talking to functionaries of the bureaucracy, also talking to people as they were engaging with, um, you know, the bureaucracy and, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's an important, um, uh, methodological tool, uh, Mm. And I think it's actually an, a methodological tool that's most appropriate um, or amongst the tools that should be in the toolkit of an of Asian American um, students and scholars that, um, you know, I see our field as one that does come from uh, these, mom- these uh, you know, social justice movements and, and, and has a responsibility to continue to work uh, towards those ends. And I think that this, that method of, of kind of ethnographies of the state or, you know, ethnographies that do this work of kind of unmasking uh, power um, are, are really important in our arsenal um, as scholars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as activists too, I would think. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, that's, that's one thing that kept occurring to me throughout this book is, uh, especially since it was published uh, two or three years ago, uh, I'm just curious how your activism since then uh, has kind of been informed by uh, the research in this work or how, you know, if there was um, activists nowadays working for uh, immigrant, especially like domestic worker rights in the U.S., uh, how would they uh, view this book? Like what would, what would it have to kind of inform their political views? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that I've done uh, with my co-former student and now who is now an assistant professor in sociology at, uh, mm. uh Portland, uh, university, Valerie Francisco. I mean, mm. we actually used this sort of, um, method, but really kind of qualitative uh, methods, more broadly interview methods. And we actually, um, in collaboration with the Filipino community center in, in, uh, San Francisco, um, designed a participatory action research project, um, to equip uh, the caregivers who were going to the center for um, 
and they had so there were just so many cases that uh, they were bringing forward to to the center um, cases of wage theft cases of employer abuse uh, um, you know uh, just de- debt peonage a whole range of issues and um, the center recognized that they needed to understand this um, what was going on amongst this category of worker um, and uh, together we collaborated on on designing and implementing a participatory action research project to get at what was going on. But more than that, to get at, um, um, you know, to, to try to use research because really, you know, qualitative research methods, particularly interview me- methods, um, uh, can really, um, are, are, are the same sorts of, uh, or, or use the same kinds of, um, strategies that organizers do in organizing in social movements. Um, mm. you know, to organize one needs to, to, to you know, uh, make contacts to organize. One needs to identify issues in a community. Um, one needs to gain trust. I mean, these are the same kinds of things one needs to conduct proper, you know, interviews for a qualitative research project. So together, Valerie and I and a team with the, from the FCC, um, you know, implemented this project, um, uh, in 2000, in, in early 2012. And, um, you know, it was basically, it started with a cohort of about 10 to 12 workers with about 10 kind of volunteers who um, just kind of immigrant rights advocates who wanted to be part of it. We, um, they had to commit to a six uh, session training. Um, That training ended with a kind of graduation. And then in the summer of 2012, we launched a massive kind of campaign of of collecting um, interviews through a variety of methods. But um, along the way, workers started meeting one another. They started recognizing that they were sharing many experiences in common and started recognizing that there might be something worthwhile about kind of organizing themselves um, and being able to voice out these shared issues and and participate um, as collectively in 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 struggles that would advance um, their rights and so along the way um, they formed uh, what is now Migrante uh, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, yeah. just over the weekend, um, it was really, really quite heartwarming and and inspiring because they elected their slate of officers and um, adopted a program of action. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say, um, you know, I think that the research project did play uh, an important role and they said as much and kind of um, helping them get on their feet and, and organize themselves. So, um, you know, and, 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 you know, it's interesting because along the way, the book um, I've, I've, done workshops around the book uh, as part of um, being able to help uh, and, and and the workers could see it themselves. I mean, they clearly know um, their own experiences. They're the best mm. experts of their own experiences. And they, they know about the bureaucracy I describe in the book. I simply, uh, you know, gave it a language that, um, you mm. know, that they already knew, uh, but didn't necessarily articulate in the terms that I did. But, you know, together we talked about um, their experiences and linked it to kind of the phenomenon that I uh, describe um 
and explain in the book. And, and so, you know, my book has, uh, you know, been able to have this kind of afterlife, um, um, in a space that we don't maybe expect an actor, you know, an, an academic book to, um, to sort of live on. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time and we're almost out of time. Uh, otherwise we could talk about this a lot more. <laughs> Uh, but can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I think it's uh, more of a U.S.-centered project. Is that right? Yeah, you know, I've got a bunch of little projects actually um, going on. I mean, I get, continue mm. to do this work on the caregivers. Um, I'm realizing that, um, and, and as I had mentioned earlier, you know, really trying to map out what labor brokerage actually means at the workplace in terms of shaping mm. workers' experiences um, needs to still be fully fleshed out uh, because we're seeing – uh, a lot of new phenomenon uh, kind of or new aspects to kind of the living and working conditions of caregivers and not just caregivers, but of more recently recent Filipino immigrants that need to be understood better. And, and they do link to labor brokerage. I definitely mm-hmm. want to continue to track kind of where U.S. corporations are in this in in, in, in um, you know, as they as it work, as they work with um, the labor brokerage state. Um so that's definitely a major part of my research um, agenda moving forward. But actually, the book I'm trying to finish now um, has nothing to do with labor brokerage, but it has everything to do with immigration and issues mm. of citizenship and uh, race. And that's based on my activist kind of scholarship when I was um, teaching at, at um, Rutgers, at Rutgers? New Jersey. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I can't not be engaged wherever I go. I think it's important mm. to kind of keep that foot um, in justice movement, social justice movements. And I did a lot of that when I was at Rutgers. And, um, so I'm finishing up a book entitled, uh, and lady Liberty's shadow, uh, race, um, and immigration in, um, New Jersey. And it really looks at kind of, um, the, 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 the ways that, um, just kind of different forms of exclusion, um, happening, Mm. um, in the state of New Jersey, um, in the suburbs. So I'm looking in that book around kind of, um, the ways in which the suburb is a site through which, um, you know, American citizenship, uh, is increasingly defined, you know, Mm. and we think about American citizenship as being, being, you know, having access to schools, um, being, um, you know, owning a home, um, you know, that's so much a part of neoliberal American citizenship, you know, so the suburb is a site for the accomplishment of American citizenship. And, and so I look then at kind of, um, what that then means, uh, when immigrants, um, are, are slowly, uh, populating the suburbs and, 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 and why therefore, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, immigrant, uh, anti-immigration policies, um, are taking a much more local flavor, uh, bent like Arizona, you know, at the state level. But mm. so anyway, you know, I, I guess in some ways I'm coming full circle, I'm coming yeah. full circle in the sense that kind of really tracking and explaining why these local kind of policies, anti-immigration policies, um, are proliferating. So, you know, if it start, if my own, all of my interest in, in, in immigration started with 187, I guess, you know, this third book is trying to kind of explain um, the proliferation of 187-like policies at the state and the municipal level, um, trying to explain why that's happening and what the uh, impacts are for immigrant communities. That sounds like a really amazing project. 
It's it's almost finished, you say, or it's in the process um, of finishing? I, you know, I've been working on this, the the book actually for many years, I and it's just really mm-hmm. piecing it all together. So it's due to come out, or hoping it comes out for the anniversary of, I guess it's the, it would be the 50th anniversary of the um, 1965 Immigration Act. So it's due mm-hmm. to come in, out in 2015. So I'm hoping to get everything um, done with the book by uh, May 2014. So, awesome. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. I think we're out of time. So I want to thank you for being on the show. I really enjoyed. I hope you enjoyed uh, being on the show as well. Yeah, absolutely. I really do. Thank you, uh, Chris, for giving me an opportunity to talk about the book. And I think uh, that this is a lovely, op- you know, way of getting folks engaged in Asian American studies. 